we have been conditioned as humans um, a certain type of, of lifestyle that is dependent, uh, heavily dependent upon, upon the use of fossil fuels. Today on City Road Podcast, we are talking with Daniel A. Barber, who's visiting Sydney as part of the European Architectural History Network Conference. Daniel is an Associate Professor of Architecture at Penn Design and is an architectural historian who researches the relationships between design fields and the emergence of global environmental cultures across the 20th century. My name is Jennifer Fern. I'm a senior lecturer here at the Sydney School of Architecture, Design and Planning, and I will be hosting today's episode of the City Road Podcast. Welcome, Daniel, to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. So when you first started researching the relationship between the history of design and environmental patterns, you were looking at early solar energy experiments in home design, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Could you tell us more about that? And what have you learned from doing some of this early research? Sure, sure. Yeah, the the first book that I produced, uh, it's called A House in the Sun, Modern Architecture and Solar Energy in the Cold War. And the project was was twofold. On the one hand, to help think about a longer history of architecture and relationship to the environment. Um, in the American context, quite similar to that of Australia, a lot of the interest in uh, home building and design practices relative to the environment seems to sort of surge in the 1970s relative to the global oil crises and countercultural trends, et cetera. So part of the project was just to, to sort of shift that back a bit and, and offer a different historical accounting that uh, focused on practices during and right after World War II, uh, mostly in the American context, although certainly a few tendrils uh, out to uh, Australia, New Zealand, and other places. Um, and the, the proposal was that uh, the sort of forms, materials, and concepts of modern architecture were especially amenable to uh, shifting the house so as to manage radiation, right, which is to say heat from the sun and when you want it to come in and when you want it to stay out. Um, uh, this was, of course, in the context during and right after the war of some anxiety around energy, uh, ac access to energy resources, right? Uh, one that we're having again today, of course, on, on very different terms. So that was kind of the second piece of the book, right? If the first was to sort of expand the history of architecture and environment, of course, one could expand it much further. Um, uh, uh, but this was specifically relative to, to modern architectural developments. Uh, that was the first point. The second project uh, was to really think about uh, a broader understanding, a broader context for the emergence of environmental movements. Um, a lot of the research ended up looking at how individuals, whether they be architects or policymakers or um, uh, technologists, um, uh, sought to uh, understand global oil resources and how to initially sort of how to manage them, how to gain access to them, but also what to do when they weren't there anymore, right? And, and uh, the so-called peak oil theory, right, which kind of gained a lot of currency in the 70s and then again in the 90s, was first developed in 1947, which is to say in this in this same immediate post-war moment, you know, sort of anxiety that eventually we will run out, right? And of course, we've since discovered that technology allows us to extend our resources uh, quite expansively. Uh, but of course, we have other pressures for uh, uh, sort of resource and energy transition uh, getting off of oil. So, so the project there was to say that, that uh, the, the way in which the, the so-called global order of the post-war world emerged in relationship to oil systems, to uh, economic systems that managed resources, uh, that that was sort of constructed and that architecture was a part of that broader cultural construction uh, with the, the sort of 
speculative ambition that as we try to produce a world less dependent on fossil fuels, that architecture will again play a role, right, in sort of managing that transition effectively. So it's really interesting because the goals of your research essentially are to establish this alternative history mm. of environmentalism. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. you do place kind of architecture as one of the main actors in yep. some of these debates. Could you speak a little bit more about some of the, the roles of, say, human beings mm. within this kind of history of the built environment? Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. you're probably familiar with the kind of debates on the Anthropocene. Sure, sure, sure. Of course. Yeah. So one of the things, the, the, the way I like to think about that that question is, you know, Part of what we're experiencing right now is the, is the sort of hegemony of air conditioning, right? Uh, I mean, it's different in different parts of the world, but it's quite different, di difficult to uh, escape the fact that, you know, we, we have uh, conditioned our interior spaces for a certain type of living, right? Uh, a living that will, a certain type of life that probably, you know, doesn't have much of a lifespan left, right? So I like to think of it as not only air conditioning, but also people conditioning, right? We have been conditioned as humans to uh, expect... Uh, value a certain type of comfort, uh, I'm putting that in air quotes, um, a certain type of, of lifestyle that is dependent, uh, heavily dependent upon, upon the use of fossil fuels. Uh, so the question of how to uh, think about different lifestyles, how to uh, imagine different ways of living both inside built spaces and in urban and, and rural environments, uh, to really to see, you know, in effect, to see the sort of challenge of getting off of oil as one that, that demands different, not only different architectural spaces, but different ways of living in them, right? So the the more recent book that I've uh, just completed is, is um, uh, that I won't tell the whole story of, but is a history of, of different methods of shading, of keeping the sun out, largely in, in uh, uh, the global south and tropical climates, uh, but elsewhere as well. Um, and one of the, the, the sort of um, projects there is to clarify that the sort of technological project of shading, which is to say sort of managing, again, how the sun enters the building and how to sort of keep it cool in hot weather, um, it involved a lot of human interaction, right? It was embodied in very specific ways, both in terms of how to sort of uh, manage those shades, right? I mean, it wasn't just simply pulling up the blinds, although it wasn't too dissimilar, right? I mean, shifting levers and pressing buttons to kind of change the interior conditions. Um, uh, but that encouraged an individual to sort of be more aware of uh, the ways in which they're inhabiting a certain space. You know, what are the practices when it's hot out? What do you do when it's cold out? How do you sort of change your lifestyle as opposed to just sort of pressing a button or having a thermostat that regulates everything so it's the same temperature all the time, right? I mean, this is how we've been conditioned is to expect that we walk into any given room in any given sort of global city, right? I mean, of course, the kind of airports and hotels are the obvious uh, uh, examples here, right? You know, walk into a room where you can't even open the window often, right? Uh, uh, and rather, you're sort of forced to accommodate yourself to the conditions of that environment. So part of what I think, I mean, this is, I'm kind of shifting the terms of the discussion a little bit here as I say this, but part of what I think we're facing as a culture, a global culture trying to transition off of fossil fuels is to really think about the types of spaces that uh, we want to inhabit and the ways in which we inhabit them relative to the thermal conditions, right, to the air conditioning or heating conditions of that interior. Um, you know, there was a famous moment, again, in the American context in, in the late 70s when um, uh, Jimmy Carter was running for re-election against Ronald Reagan. And in the con I mean, it's a long story, of course, in the context of uh, 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 complications in, in Iran and, and oil embargoes and other things. And, and Carter made an announce referred to as the Malays speech, right? An announcement that he uh, went on television to suggest in part that uh, Americans can, can resist the sort of pressures of the oil conflict with Iran 
by turning down the thermostat and putting on a sweater, right? By, I mean, in this very simple lifestyle adjustment, right? Uh, wear more clothes when it gets cold. Um, uh, something we're all quite familiar with, of course. Uh, and, and the sort of, you know, the, the narrative goes that that uh, indication of American weakness, right? Rather than conquer politically, we will shift our sort of ways of living, um, uh, uh, in part led to uh, the election of Ronald Reagan. I mean, that's, I'm making that much too grandiose, right? But the sort of notion that that indicated uh, something that the electorate did not support. So it's just to say that there are challenges, right? That seem things that seem quite simple, putting on a sweater, taking off a sweater when the weather demands, um, uh, have complex cultural and political overtones to them, right? That produce this, these kind of resistance to change that of course we're all part of and familiar with. Yeah. I think that's an excellent segue, Daniel, because, you know, systems of heating and cooling um, are often not thought about in the design of buildings, mm. which leads me to mm. my next question, which is about your recent work about the Bauhaus Dessau building in Germany. But before we talk a little bit about that, could you give us a little bit of information about the significance of this particular building? Sure. And particularly, why did you choose to work on the Bauhaus and, sure. and heating systems? Sure. Right. So the Bauhaus Dessau is arguably one of the more famous buildings in the world, certainly within the context of the history of modern architecture, um, uh, designed and built by Walter Gropius in the mid-1920s as the second home of the famous Bauhaus School, which is currently celebrating its 100th anniversary, having started in its first building in 1919, right? So this sort of notion of an icon uh, of, of how um, uh, the shifts that we uh, identify as modern architecture, right, their modern design more generally, uh, having to do with efficiency, having to do with formal exploration, uh, having to do with a certain type of collective um, effort to transform the way that we uh, experience the world, right? I mean, the, one of the uh, foundations of the Bauhaus pedagogy, and I should note, you know, I'm not a sort of expert on this particular uh, aspect of the field. Um, but one of the foundations of its pedagogical uh, project was to form workshops in which, uh, with under the tutelage of, of, a, of a senior faculty member, basically, uh, individuals would learn uh, you know, how to engage with textiles, how to produce furniture, that they would learn collectively and, and use that workshop as a space to uh, produce knowledge. And so part of what I was interested in are the thermal conditions that allowed that workshop to exist, right? And if anybody is familiar with the Bauhaus building, or of course it's easily Google, Googleable, um, uh, it's a building that has a single, it's, it's the, the famous workshop building itself, the, that sort of wing of the building, has uh, you know, a sort of wraparound uh, wall of, of single pane glass, um, uh, quite beautiful, quite stunning, evident of the openness of the workshop space, evident of a kind of uh, a visibility between inside and outside, a sort of you know, visual communication between the kind of activities of the interior and the exterior. Uh, but a nightmare in terms of thermal conditioning, right? I mean, not, which is to say that uh, uh, part of what allowed the building to exist, given that thin curtain wall, given a, a set of heating conditions on the perimeter of the space, uh, you know, that, that were not well insulated by that thin curtain wall, they, the building required a large amount of coal to uh, produce a, a, a livable environment in the interior uh, that allowed for these pedagogical ambitions to play out. Uh, so part of the, yeah, so part of, you know, the interest in the, the building itself is as, is as a sort of icon of the kind of cultural change that, you know, going back to the comments I was just making are I, things I think we need again today, right? How do we change the way we experience space and think about design and think about materials and their relationship to a broader social, uh, social condition? 
Yeah, so part of what I was interested in was that the Bauhaus, uh, in, in general terms, had that same sort of project, right? Not quite revolution, but certainly radical transformation of the socio-industrial apparatus, right? So as to focus on uh, increased equity and, and a sort of broader, um, um, allowing a broader swath of the population to experience the benefits of modernity, again, to speak in the most general possible terms. And I think part of what we're facing today as a broad culture and certainly within architecture is how do we enact a sort of shift in cultural relations relative to the pressures of climate change and the, and the complications that introduces relative to the use of energy. So to see the Bauhaus as kind of an icon of, of, a, of an energy transition expressed through architecture, right? Which today we can see as, you know, complicated, if not in fact a, a negative example, right? I mean, um, uh, you know, much of the technological exploration in uh, environmental building design today focuses on multi-paned glass panels, you know, three, four, five different panes of glass that are used to allow the sun to come in, but also increase insulation, right? So just an indication that these kind of single-paned windows are a sort of object of analysis, right? A sort of space for us to consider uh, what sort of design moves worked in a given context and what work differently today. So I think that's a really great point to make that essentially we are you are advocating for the reassessment or reevaluation of some of these rather modernist and mm. iconic buildings mm -hmm, mm -hmm. through an environmental lens, right, um, if right. you will. And perhaps, probably in your opinion, this is really underdone. Not mm. enough people are doing it. Indeed. We no, doing I, more? I, so, right. I mean, and, and, and there's sort of, again, two sort of uh, ambitions here. One, I would say, is sort of within the architectural community, within architectural history, I should say, the sort of... Uh, uh, group of global group of scholars that are talking about these buildings and have been for some time to just sort of raise a flag and say, you know, what about energy, right? And how how do we understand these buildings relative to energy production, right? So again, at the Bauhaus, you know, understanding uh, that the the innovative spaces that were produced required, you know, huge amounts of coal and how that related to energy policy. Uh, I mean, I use that term quite loosely because there wasn't any sort of national policy in Germany at the time, but how that related to uh, energy and politics and, and, you know, how those play out relative to social ambitions. For decades, the Bauhaus building basically had a huge pile of coal uh, behind it, right? That was just, you know, shoveled into the boilers. And, um, you know, I mean, I go through the, the history of the 11 different changes to the boiler systems over the last uh, almost 100 years. Um, uh, and again, these are familiar stories, right? I mean, this is an iconic example. But anybody who's, you know, owned a house for um, a couple of decades has probably changed their heating system quite dramatically, right? That we've, we know that these are uh, systems that are based on obsolescence in, in some form. Um, uh, in this case, it was a bit extreme because it was a very difficult building to heat, right, as, I, as I've indicated. But I think that, you know, the sort of general question is, is certainly correct in, in, in that, uh, you know, how to, uh, in, insofar as the project is not only for architectural historians to think about energy, but also, again, more generally uh, for, you know, the broader public to consider how we make choices relative to energy systems and, and heating and cooling and electricity. You know, it's not only to say that, you know, turn your lights off when you leave the house sort of thing, right? I mean, the kind of simple personal habits that will certainly have an impact on energy use. But more um, more aggressively to you know work with policymakers and and uh, sort of broader contexts of of managing the built environment to think about what sort of spaces are required to think about the kinds of heating systems uh, that are more efficient and can allow for more variation. Um, you know there was a moment a few I think it was I think it was on Earth Day actually which is what April twenty second uh, the mayor of New York City Bill De Blasio 
in the context of a of another report on the impending you know dangers of climate change getting becoming more impending right coming more quickly than imagined and he made a statement where he proposed to ban all construction in steel and glass right which is basically most uh, high rise construction um and immediately the response of the you know the development community was basically like well then how would we build right which is just an indication that i mean that's a kind of to somewhat of a tempest in a teapot and you know de blasio didn't really have a mechanism to to perform the ban right i mean it was all just sort of a, a set of discussions so far um, but the point being that we have become uh, our, our industrial uh, metabolism as such and the, and the kind of system of building not simply amongst architects but amongst uh, the construction concerns and and coding system you know code systems and the sort of broader edifice that i've been referring to as building culture is very difficult to transform right and is very strongly embedded in a dependence on fossil fuels um, you know another point i make in a slightly different context uh, looks at the the Seagram's building in Manhattan, another sort of icon of modern architecture built in 1957 uh, to the designs of Mies van der Rohe. Uh, similarly, with a single-paned curtain wall with heating registers, you know, inches from that single-paned window, uh, wildly inefficient, right? Uh, but in a moment, again, in the late uh, mid-1957, mid to late 1950s, part of the, what I argue in a related context is that part of the project of those kinds of skyscrapers was in fact to use as much energy as possible, right? Because that produced more economic activity, uh, that produced uh, uh, the capacity for economies to expand, that also had certain uh, political advantages uh, relative to the Eisenhower administration and their desire to increase the flows of oil from the Middle East uh, for, for relatively straightforward geopolitical reasons that we're still sort of suffering from uh, as a global society. There was no reason to not use as much energy as possible, right? Um, so yeah, there was no check right, on, on the kind of need to, to heat that building uh, inefficiently. And of course, now we live in a dramatically different uh, uh, energy situation uh, in which we're, you know, we're trying to think very carefully about how to reduce energy loads. Uh, so, but de Blasio's indication that we just have to scrap all of these underperforming buildings, you know, is perhaps a bit extreme and, and, and not technologically sound, right? But at the same time, I think is a nice effort to say things have to change dramatically. Um, when the, uh, in 2009, when uh, uh, then Mayor Bloomberg um, did a, a sort of audit, energy audit of Midtown Manhattan and rated buildings on zero to 100 as to their energy performance, the Seagrams came in at a two from zero to 100, right? And that was significantly lower than 80% of, you know, I think the lowest other, the lowest score above that was 47 or something, right? So I like to refer to these buildings, these modern icons as stranded assets, right? We, we can't use them anymore, basically. They no longer perform according to the demands of society. Uh, we're holding on to them for kind of nostalgic reasons, and I mean, in some cases, or uh, of course, economic reasons. I mean, uh, the Seagrams is still occupied, still used as an office building, uh, but it seems like their time is, is, is waning, right? And they kind of now stand as monuments of a misconceived relationship between human societies and energy systems. I think you make an excellent point, Daniel, which is that even in the upkeep or the maintenance of modern icons like the Seagram's building and, and the fact that you just wonderfully gave, there are implications for heritage preservation. Mm, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. you mentioned this in a, an upcoming article that you're, you're finishing uh, about the role of preservation for these modernist mm -hmm, buildings mm -hmm. in relationship to energy right. efficiency. Right. 
So maybe yeah. going back to your Bauhaus model, sure, sure. you know, what are some of the implications of changing a building right. um, so that it can conform to some of these standards? Sure. Right. So with the Bauhaus is an interesting example because, of course, it's been a valuable uh, icon of modern architecture for so many years and has been sort of attended to quite heavily. And of course, also in the context of the shifts of the Cold War uh, and post-Cold War periods. Um, it went through a number of renovations, uh, the building itself, not only the heating system, uh, and in the most recent uh, attempt to bring the building up to some sort of uh, code relative to thermal conditions without compromising its heritage value, um, Brenna Architecten did a very uh, comprehensive analysis and review uh, of the building. Uh, there was very little that they could touch, in effect, right? And and the, they spent some time exploring different curtain systems to you know use them as means to sort of uh, increase insulation uh, relative to the single pane curtain wall. Um, they were able to, in some cases, not the kind of um, you know kind of money shot versions, right? But in some of the other windows that were not in the in the kind of main workshop space, uh, spent a lot of time exploring uh, new technologies to produce a more insulated uh, window profile, as it's called, which is to say a a sectional view of the building of the window that shows the clasping mechanism and the the ways in which it, it opens and shuts uh, basically a very tightly insulated seal uh, produced with carbon fibers that was an improvement on the previous version but that could be produced in ways that looked more or less the same right so it was replacing these windows with incredibly more efficient windows without changing their uh, sort of visual uh, condition however again the workshop building itself and sort of back to the notion of the stranded asset uh, uh, it was basically decided that the building had to be abandoned for functional use. Um, uh, he has a great, the Brennan Architect and have a great diagram where they just sort of, you know, not exactly scratch it out, but, you know, kind of indicate that it is no longer uh, accessible relative to contemporary uh, heating and cooling, co heating and cooling expectations, right? So, I mean, that's a whole, that's a really interesting point right there, right? How have our heating and cooling expectations changed as a society from, you know, 1926 to today, right? Uh, back to the kind of sweater question to some extent. Um, uh, so there were a number of proposals around 2011, 2012 to think about how to maintain the building. You know, one of them involved a sort of inflatable membrane on the interior where you could have some activities go on, you know, kind of heating a smaller space, right, in a more insulated fashion. Um, but the general perception is that, you know, we use that space is now accessible as a monument, right? The, if anybody's been there recently, you'll know that in the workshop spaces themselves, uh, there's a small exhibition space, there's a gift shop, right? And, and I think the assessment has been that you can sort of you know, stay warm in the gift shop long enough, right? Uh, uh, with your with your coats from outside, that the thermal conditions won't matter. I I happened to be there on in at the end the tail end of the recent heat wave uh, that came through Germany, and it was pretty difficult to to experience the space in those conditions. Uh, so in effect, again, yeah, the space has been sort of functionally abandoned um, in order to preserve it, uh, which is to say, one could imagine you know, completely reglazing the whole building with insulated glass and changing the system to such an extent that it was still viable as a thermal space, but it was decided that the, the heritage value was overwhelmed the need to use it as a, as a workshop space, as a pedagogical space. It so happens that there's a number of buildings that have been built uh, literally next door uh, as uh, architecture studios for the Technical uh, University of Anhalt that uh, sort of serve that, continue that workshop purpose to some extent, right? Uh, so again, yeah, the building itself has effect, you know, has, 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 has been functionally abandoned as a, as a thermal space. And I think that's a kind of indication of the intensity of these challenges, right? Uh, but also a way to say, okay, so let's, let's value the building for what it represents 
for the history that it holds, but also reflect on the reasons that we have, you know, decided not to just sort of turn up, you know, throw in more coal, so to speak, right, to kind of heat it in the current condition uh, because of the pressures that we face relative to, to carbon emissions, right? So heritage takes on a, a value that is not only about preserving the past, but also thinking about the future in different ways. I think that's a wonderful comment to end on, Dan. A kind of really wonderful rethinking of modernist icons like the Bauhaus at Dessau mm. and the Seacombs building um, via energy efficiency and preservation. Right. Thank you for Great. being on the show. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you.